the 20 days of rowing, Erdin Eruch reaches Mozambique, ditches his rowboat and hops on a bicycle. You're dealing with flies, you're dealing with sand flies, you're dealing with mosquitoes, you're dealing with discomfort, you're dealing with all of these come down on you. It becomes a huge pressure cooker. Uh, this is Indiana Jones stuff. It's monsoon season, and Erden and his bike have just come onto an unpaved trail. The 60-kilometer road ahead is flooded with silt, but it's the only way through. And my bicycle just got buried into that knee-deep. It looked like chocolate milk. Horrendous, slow-moving, and there was really no way to get off of this. Am I going to have to get lifted out of here? Erdin was exhausted and mad at himself. He'd come all this way. He was massively in debt, all in the name of a dream to travel across the entire globe alone. It was a sense of frustration. The world felt like it was caving down on me. I felt incredibly isolated. That day, Erdin wrote in his dispatch, Thursday, May the 26th, was the day when I thought I could actually fail. And then eventually I found this path. The lesson was, don't you dare quit. <laughs> because the solution shows up. I'm Rob Pope, and from Red Bull, this is How To Be Superhuman. In this episode, we're talking to Erdin Eruch, the first person in history to travel right around the world without using any engines. So, by bike, boat, walking, cycling, relying entirely on the power of his own body. This journey around the world would take him from California, across the Pacific, to Australia, onwards to Africa and back again. Erdin wasn't even a professional runner, cyclist or rower when he started. He was a 46-year-old former IT guy. Though he'd spent most of his adult life in front of a computer, Erdem was no stranger to the outdoors. Raised in Turkey, he spent his weekends climbing mountains with his father. Aged 11, he climbed a nearly 13,000-foot peak. He was also a nationally ranked wrestler. Then, in 1986, he moved to the States to do a Masters, where he settled and met his now-wife, Nancy. He was happy with his life, but he wanted to live it, not just get through it. I came across a world map, a special map with Pacific in the middle, America's on the right. I was in Washington, D.C. then, and I traced my finger across the Pacific to Turkey, and I even gave it a name across the Bering Straits. I called it Journey Home. Could I do this by human power? When I shared this kind of idea with others, 
you know, they were cynical. Have you done anything like that before? It was a common question. Erdin nursed this idea. He even took the first steps towards becoming a mountain guide. But he'd parked his dream of going around the world. That was, until he met his hero, Goran Krop, a Swedish mountaineer who travelled to Everest alone by bike, then did a solo climb without support. I had a chance to shake hands with him, and he was taller than me for sure. Uh, you know, over six feet tall. I'm uh, five seven. So I told him what I was up, uh, what I had been planning, and he says, "Do you have sponsors? When are you starting?" Questions Ed didn't have answers to, but the fact that his hero took him seriously gave him hope, and the two developed something akin to a friendship. And one day out of the blue, I received a phone call saying, I am in the area, let's go climbing. And we quickly decided that we would go climbing in Frenchman Coulee. It was a nice, cool day in September. They were in eastern Washington, a place called the Columbia River Gorge. The place was deserted. It was a midweek day. I had two other friends with me, so we were two rope teams climbing separate short routes uh, along basalt columns so of varying widths and uh, corners and whatnot that uh, offer a lot of variety. So we settled on one platform from which we could access more than one vertical crack, and we were just hitting them one by once. It had been a perfect day. Erden's dream day, really. They were gearing up for one last climb. Goran was just ahead of Erdin on the rock. Goran went up a corner. He got to the very top, just short of the chains. I was right in the corner, tucked in, paying out rope as he went. Then Erdin heard a clattering noise above. I looked up, he was falling. Erdin acted fast. He took out an arm's length of rope. And then I dropped down on my knee to take out any more slack, and that's all I could do. And he kept falling. All the safety clips and precautions kept snapping out of the rock face. Goran fell past the ledge Erdan was on, and Erdan dug in and braced himself. He had uh, picked up enough speed by then, and he pulled the next pro down out of the rock and the next thing I know he hit the platform I was on just behind me and then fell onto the trail and that was it. Goran fell to his death. On Erdin's very first climb with his hero, he watched him die. Erdin spent Days thinking about what he could have done differently, how he could have prevented this tragedy. There was an investigation into Goran's death which concluded it was just an unfortunate accident. It wasn't Erden's fault. When I returned to the site of the accident, everything was fresh. Yeah, still hadn't been trampled. People hadn't stepped over it. There was just one rock soaked in his blood. And I picked that up, and I kept it, as morbid as that may be. Erdin literally took a memento mori from the scene. 
this blood-soaked rock and he put it into a little container, which he still keeps by his side. And it represents him and it's still in a little small container. It was a sad day, quite the turning point for me. And it turned out to be the swift kick I needed in my rear to get going myself. His hero's death made Erden realise he needed to stop dreaming about his big adventure around the world and just do it. I decided life was short. It became the turning point for me and there was just no alternative at that point. I sat across the table with my then fiance Nancy and I said, I must do this now. She said, you will, you must. And we didn't look back. The excuses went out the door. I cashed out my retirement funds and got started. Erden sold his property, took out a hefty loan and bought a used two-man rowing boat. He refurbished it and joined the local rowing club. In July 2007, he stood on the edge of Bodega Bay in California facing a potential 300-something days at sea till he reached Australia. His boat was packed with freeze-dried eggs, the occasional luxury sliced pineapple, and an iPod. You're standing sort of on a beach now. It's time to go. This is it. This is the big one. Yes. Take us through what you were feeling at that point. What were you seeing around you, you know? You know, by the time you get to that point, 80% of the work is done. So there's a great deal of anticipation and relief and the sense that, hey, this is the point of no return. The daily routine becomes uh, just waking up with the daybreak, really. When the sky goes from black to dark blue, (laughs) I'm awake. I've had enough sleep. I got to get out. And I would row for two hours, whatever, and then... If I want music, then I first have to earn it, right? Erden had designed himself a reward mechanism, whereby if he could just get through the early morning's rowing, he could relax a bit. What did you like to listen to? <laughs> well, I'm uh, I'm Pink Floyd kind of person. Oh, well. yeah. <laughs> I am, so I kept, I kept circling back to a few that I enjoyed, and there are I had some Turkish uh, tracks as well. I had uh, classical church music, folk music, and then I would swing right back to Western classical music, like Beethoven's and whatnot, and then some rock. And when I needed to rock it up. By noon, he usually started to get hungry. Uh, each time I take a break, get off the oars, it would be the time to pull out the satellite phones to see if there are any messages that are sitting there and then you message back and forth with Nancy. That's his wife. We were like uh, <laughs> middle school kids texting back and forth. She'd be in a meeting responding back, smiling. Uh, <laughs> and uh, so, you know, I want that chocolate. You'll get it in the afternoon after you have road. Another one of Erden's reward mechanism tricks. I would tie the oars just before sunset. As the sun is approaching the horizon, I would 
face the horizon and wait for the green flash to take place. How was your relationship with the sea? You know, sort of was it was it what you expected? Oh, it depends on the ocean, doesn't it? Uh, mm. I found that every ocean has a different character. The Pacific was capricious, disappointed me <laughs> so many times, gave me hope and dashed it. Eden became hyper attuned to the language of the sea and to its inhabitants. Under my boat became a little ecosystem, right? Um, small fish would congregate underneath to feed on the little algae growing on my hull. They would feed on that, hang out in the shade of it, and then larger fish would come. They would all swim together, and then one would come and become aggressive, try to pick these. If I am inside the boat and listening, I hear this torpedo sound go whoosh, whoosh. Very fast movement, that's tuna under my boat dashing to grab stuff. If I heard a knocking sound, like a door knock on a wooden door kind of thing, on my plywood hull, that's a turtle uh, hanging underneath the boat <laughs> trying to get at the uh, barnacles. If I heard chirping sounds, of course, those are the dolphins. So you get a sense of what's going on around as well. And if you heard the Jaws music. Yeah, well, I did have sharks, but then of course, uh, Smaller sharks a lot, uh, showed up a lot, and they would be right under my boat or just behind the boat. They So they benefit from the shade so they can see better. They benefit from any morsels that may fall off their mouth or from their rear end, so they feed on that stuff. It becomes this food chain. The capricious Pacific soon showed Erdan its unforgiving side. After 147 days of rowing, with salt blisters all over his body, Erdan got stuck in a countercurrent. Winds from opposing directions conspired against him. He couldn't get to where he wanted, couldn't get out of the current, so he just kept rowing. On the 13th day in the countercurrent, he discovers he's just gone in a massive circle and ended right back where he was two weeks prior. A massive disappointment and a waste of precious effort. Were you not frightened at any point and like sort of, you know, just wondering if that, that maybe that was it? I wouldn't call it fear. So there is really no fear out there. There is, of course, worry and trepidation and all of those things. You're constantly trying to figure out, based on what happened in the last 24 hours, what now? What now? What now? And constantly uh, beating yourself to this and then realizing there is really no controlling the outcome. The ocean is so much bigger, so much stronger than me. And I then you end up with a sense of submission. You just say, all right, just calm down, listen to this. There's no use in cussing at the sea and swinging your fist at the skies and cursing at whoever may be up there, whether that exists or not. Uh, is it in my head? Am I imagining? Is there someone being spiteful up there in the sky? Or is it Neptune? I have no idea. Is it below me? So you just go through these turmoils that's just tearing you apart inside and then you can drive yourself nuts with those kinds of thoughts. And so 
mind control becomes a bit of a task. I need to suppress what I don't want. I need to bring up hopeful thoughts, right? Just control mm. that mood. And so I, if I didn't like what was going on, I learned that I could actually do a multiplication table. <laughs> so instead of just trying to blank out my mind, I say, give yourself a task, get busy with that. So I would start with one times one equals one, one times two equals two. And then by the time you get to four times one equals four, you're actually, you don't even get there. You, you, it tends to suppress things. And by then, of course, a bird shows up, a fish shows up, something happens. And then you're in the moment for a while until it comes back and resurfaces. You just have to tamp those down and plan the future, really. But planning only got Erdin so far. Nothing I planned went according to plan. I wanted to cross the equator and go to Australia and never crossed the equator. It was a strong La Nina year. It ended up driving me west, 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 west. End up, ended up north of Papua New Guinea in the typhoon season. Wrong time of the year in the wrong hemisphere. I just could not bring the boat to land. Erdem was tired. He'd been at sea for 312 days now. And the problem was, he had very little food left in the boat. If he was going to survive, he'd have to get to shore soon, before his reserves ran out. I was not able to cross south and I was not able to overcome the southeast trades. The rule of circumnavigation is that you can pause and take a break, but you have to return to the exact same spot where you left off. I had to look for alternative landing sites, find a spot where I could land and then maybe continue the following season when the conditions were right. So on May the 17th, 2008, with only days of food left, Aaron called for help on his radio. Some nearby Philippine fishermen in a bigger boat came to rescue him. After they picked Erdin up, he returned home to the States to his wife Nancy for a long break. When I got off the water after 312 days, I developed uh, edema below the knees. So my feet would swell. It would be uncomfortable. My ankles would swell. And it, it would feel, my skin would feel really tight and drum-like. And when I pressed on it, it would uh, leave pits. It was pitting edema. And it took about six, six months for that to go away. Eight months after he was rescued by the fisherman, he returned to the exact same spot. And this time, he managed to land the boat. He continued on to Australia and then to Africa. When he got to Mozambique, he ditched the rowboat and got on a bike. Being a land creature myself, I'm starting to feel relieved for Erden. But this is actually when things got really, really tough for him. You're dealing with flies, you're dealing with sand flies, you're dealing with mosquitoes, you're dealing with discomfort, you're dealing with uh, malaria, threat of malaria, you're dealing with mm, uh, the heat and the discomfort. All of these come down on you. It becomes a huge pressure cooker. This is Indiana Jones stuff. Indiana Jones is maybe too romantic a way of putting it. 
Cycling through Mozambique was the first time Erden thought of giving up, of ditching the whole thing. It was monsoon season, and the 60-kilometre unpaved road he was on was covered in a thick silt. And my bicycle just got buried into that. I got into this uh, knee-deep, it looked like chocolate milk. Horrendous, slow-moving, and there was really no way to get off of this to camp on the side because it was just thick bush and, uh, and there was no way to set up tent or anything. Erdin starts thinking, am I going to have to get airlifted out of here with my bike? He'd come so far and had put all of his finances into this trip. He was in serious debt. If he'd quit now, it would have all been for nothing. I don't want to deal with it. That was the sense that I was starting to get. It was a sense of frustration. The world felt like it was caving down on me. He felt isolated, worried. And that was the day he wrote in his dispatches. Thursday, May the 26th, was the day when I thought I could actually fail. He got off his bike and started just pushing it through the knee-deep silt. And then eventually I found this path to the newly built highway, and it was empty. Because it was a paved highway, the silt just drained off the road, and Erden could get back on his bike. I had the entire highway to myself and had these little clean rainwater collection puddles on the highway too. And I used those to rinse off my shoes, my socks, and cleaned off the uh, bicycle as best I could. The lesson was, don't you dare quit. (laughs) Because the solution shows up. (sighs) Edna's has made it through. But he was tired. And he wasn't the only one. His partner Nancy, back in the States was on her own emotional roller coaster. And by the time we were in Africa, though, it was really getting tiring. She was concerned about, obviously, for the budget deficit that we had accumulated by then. It was right at $240,000 or so. $240,000. Now, in this day of adventure, it's getting really quite difficult to attract sponsors. And I can empathise with that, but... Surely in terms of the uniqueness of this adventure and the sheer enormity, it's a surefire winner. So Erda was massively frustrated and you could certainly imagine so was Nancy. Yeah, and then she, she basically was getting impatient as well. She, she just said, you know, why are you pushing this? Nobody cares. I said, I care. Uh, <laughs> I wasn't getting enough uh, <laughs> Uh, media coverage, uh, with without visibility, uh, without sponsorships, I wasn't paying the bills. And you feel like it's all for naught. Uh, so she was pressing me to come home. You know, I might not be there when you come home, she would say often. There was a lot of stubbornness on my end to not quit and try to explain myself and justify it uh, mostly on financial terms saying we can't afford to stop I have to continue if I stop this is the end of it 
we have to pull the plug on it. I may have to just dump the rowboat where it is and burn it on a port in <laughs> Tanzania somewhere, wherever it's sitting, and just go home and be a normal person. And uh, maybe that's what Nancy wanted. And she was saying it, she was frustrated. She was pressing me to come home and reconsider all my priorities. Telling me the hard to hear things. Like, I may not be here when you come back. But we stayed on the edge for a good long while. We've already established that Nancy, Nancy, you're a saint. We know this, you know, but yes. if you don't mind me paraphrasing her, she said to a reporter, you know, Africa is really tough and I thought his trip might end there or we would. We were both struggling with it all and I knew he had gone into a deeper place to push through. So what was that deeper place? It was the feeling that it was me against the world. I was going to do this anyway. I was going to finish this despite everything. I Every time I moved, the boat was one end of the world. I was there. Even if I left it at a port and took time off, uh, I would be paying money. So every movement I made cost us money. We were already down so deep. And there was this sense of doom. We are in so deep. We are... Never going to recover from this. I might as well get something out of this. I cannot just throw it all away and walk away from this. This uh, sense of wanting to get it done and not fail on my promises, really. It was more an internal drive and I was going to just barge forward. And really my attitude started showing through as well. Either help or get out of my way. After that grim day stuck in the silt in Mozambique, where he nearly considered packing it all in, Erdem pushed through to Tanzania, then Namibia, then across the ocean to Venezuela. He'd been on this journey for nearly five years now, and his last sea crossing was ahead of him. He'd have to cross the Gulf of Mexico to reach dry land in Louisiana. And there was one particular danger on the horizon. The imposing, burning oil rigs dotted all around. If Erden's boat crashed into one of the oil platforms, it would shatter. They have these floating platforms with a pipe going down, drilling the bottom. And my chart plotter by then had failed. This meant Erden wasn't able to see where the oil rigs were on a map. So instead, he had to just use his eyes. So when I saw these uh, platforms on the horizon, they're lit up, obviously, I would judge how far they would be. So the horizon would be eight miles away, uh, 10 miles away. Uh, I could get a sense of that distance. And then judging that, I could decide how much I could sleep. For three days, he barely slept and he was beginning to feel delirious. I just did not want to damage the boat. Uh, damaging the boat would have been picking up the boat, 
returning to the same spot, creating more expenses. So each time I'm thinking dollar signs, dollar signs. <laughs> so, well, never mind that. It's it's your it's your life in it because against no that too, of course. Against those beasts, your boat might as well be made of matchsticks. To be honest, mightn't it? You know. So, yeah. uh, how did you stay awake? Was it approaching Louisiana? Was it the blues and jazz? <laughs> I had recorded books. Recorded books are the best. So I actually had the recorded books, and uh, what I found out is as I have the rowing going on and so much happening around me, uh, quickly these recorded books turn into white noise in the background. So I learned to repeat what I hear. So in my mind, as I'm listening to a recorded book, I am echoing what's being said and registering, 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 right? Trying to keep it in. To understand that paragraph, then I can move on to the next one. As, as it's happening, there's a lot of processing happening. 69 days later, with the help of his audiobooks, Erdan finally reached dry land in Louisiana. He got on a bike and cycled through New Mexico to California, where he began his mammoth journey five years earlier. He rode three oceans, cycled across three continents, and saw some amazing things along the way, like the view from the summit of Kilimanjaro alongside his father, and a hundred sunsets as he waited for the green flash as the sun dipped into the ocean, or the sound of sharks scraping along the bottom of his boat in a dark Pacific night. And finally, on the 21st of July, 2012, Erden reached Bodega Bay, where he first set off, now, a different person. There was the pontoon where I took off, and then I kneeled down right next to the pontoon and dipped my toe in the water slapped the water of my hand. I said, that's it, done, that's it. Uh, I need to be with Nancy. Nancy was tending to a dying mother in Perryville, Kentucky. So I bought a ticket and flew to St. Louis, made it to Perryville where her mother was. I got in and as soon as I got in, she woke up momentarily and said, is that you are then recognized my arrival and then went back into coma. And that they were besides themselves. That's all they could do to move her around. And they needed the physical strength that I could offer. So we were able to comfort her, move her from one bench to a bed. And eventually she was taken to a hospital and she passed away within 48 hours of me arriving. It was actually when... We made peace with Nancy. Mm. I yeah. was there when she most needed me, and we didn't look back. I know from grateful experience how important it is to have somebody like that. These solo adventures, yeah, they may be unsupported, but there's usually always someone behind the scenes keeping an eye open for you. Now, if you have anything to say about Erden's story, just tweet us using the hashtag RedBull, how to be superhuman. And please send us your own superhuman tales, because we want to hear what you guys have been up to. Please remember, follow the podcast, rate it, and leave a great review, because it helps other people discover the show. 
We really appreciate it when you share the love with us. Finally, if you want more from the series, like articles or pictures, just head to redbull.com slash superhuman. Next time on How To Be Superhuman, it's a woman many people think of as the queen of ultra running. Come fly with us. It was like my body went into this rigor mortis state. So it was like I died a death out there. (laughs) 